What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money is gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. Roundlyx, that's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com. Go sign up now. When I need to trade crypto on the go, Voyager is the only app I trust. It's so intuitive and simple. In just a few minutes, you can download the app, create an account, and transfer cash from your bank account to start trading. Voyager offers commission-free trading. That's right, free trading of more than 30 top crypto assets, which has saved me tons of money on fees. The best part? They're offering interest on Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Litecoin, and multiple stable coins. No lockups or limits. Visit investvoyager.com or search Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free, that's right, free Bitcoin to try out my favorite crypto trading app. Use promo code SCOTT25. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only event and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. My guest today is known for having the most appearances in history on the Bachelor franchise shows, but I think you'll find that there's much more to this guy than you've seen on TV. I'm pumped to welcome Chris Bukowski to the show. Chris, thank you so much for being here today, man. Of course. Thanks for having me, Scott. Um, so how many girls would you say that you've hooked up with on live television? <laughs> um, I would say I would say five. Oh, that's that's pretty respectable. You've had six appearances on the show. Is that correct? Well, it depends on what we're considering hooking up. Um, so, uh, so it could be anywhere from like five to fifteen. You know, so kisses. So you you basically kissed fifteen girls. Yeah, or, unless, unless we're like counting holding hands. Correct. Yeah, you know, first first base. I mean, that's a lot. But I guess if you're actually the bachelor, you're it's like twenty five or thirty on every single on that's, every single show, right? That's a good point. Yep. Seems, seems like that would be uh, dangerous for passing around, you know, cold sores and stuff. But Well, so they test you before you go on the show. So everyone's uh, checked for STDs and uh, and drugs and all that stuff before you actually start filming. Well, I had no idea. Does that mean that they actually wouldn't let you on the show if you had something? Um, it depends. Usually they'll help you treat it if you got something that's treatable or they'll if you did have something, they would have, you know, have something where it's you can manage it, you know, while you're filming. Wow. The things that you don't uh, think of about live television, I guess. <laughs> so um, to that end, uh, being on that show and being there so many times, do you, do you believe that people have an accurate picture of who you really are from watching you on television? Or do you think that they sort of paint, you know, the picture that they want of each person that's there to make for, you know, better, better TV? Yeah, I don't think you'll ever get the true depiction of anybody uh, from that show because, I mean, there's so much filming and then it's cut so many times that, you know, you're you're almost a different person every time you're on it. Uh, so I don't think there's really a – you probably get about half of me, um, you know, from what you see on TV. So that obviously there's a lot more – I mean, a lot more to, you know, everyone that's on the show. But, uh, you know, they're making a show, so there's – there's uh, different things they got to stick in there and make different kind of characters. It's funny. One of my best friends was on one of the initial seasons of Road Rules, if you remember that show oh, on MTV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they, they effectively painted one of the guys that was on the show with him as gay by just oh. the way they edited the show. But he wasn't at all. They just never showed him when he was talking to girls and sort of implied that that's what his situation was because it made for a better show. So I'm not really surprised to hear that at all, obviously. Oh, yeah, man. They were ahead of their time back in the day because now it's... Oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what's, you said that people get about 50%. I mean, can you tell us, you know, I guess start from when you were a kid, what kind of person you are, what are people not seeing? Yeah, I mean... I'm just, I'm a, I'm a Midwestern guy, you know, really just kind of chill. I mean, not, not highly emotional. I'm a family guy. Uh, you know, I grew up in Chicago. Um, 
So, you know, on the show, you get, you get, you get both sides of the spectrum, um, of me, I guess. Uh, but you know, in your everyday life, you're just, uh, the average of, of, of both sides. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a family guy. Um, I keep my friends close and, um, you know, I'm not, uh, over the top, uh, with, with anything really just passionate about, you know, uh, work and, um, and just being a better person. That makes sense. You said you keep your friends close. Does that mean enemies closer? <laughs> well, you have to do that too. Cause you know, you don't know who to trust these days, but yeah, you definitely got to keep your enemies closer. Yeah. I know you told me before uh, that you're, you were an athlete growing up. What sports did you play? Uh, primarily baseball was my sports. Um, and I played football and basketball as well in high school. Oh, that's like the, the great American trifecta. I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> and, and then that led you, uh, I read to going to school at UNLV. Now I can't imagine, I, I literally can't make it through two days in Vegas without turning into like a shriveled up dying raisin. So I, I don't understand at that age how you could survive life in Las Vegas in college. What was that like? Well, it's insane. Let me tell you, you know, people say if you can live in, if, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. But I, I actually think that holds true for Las Vegas instead. Um, you know, going to going to school there, it's, I mean, it's a complete culture shock, uh, you know, growing up from a suburb in Chicago. Uh, but you learn really quick, um, like if you're going to survive or if you're not going to survive. And we, we had fake ideas. IDs probably, you know, a week into living in the dorms. And, uh, you know, I, my first semester of college was, it was a blur. And then you just kind of realize, all right, like if I'm going to, you know, stick this out for a couple of years here, then I'm going to have to try to get it together. I mean, we never fully did, but I think we all just kind of started to be a little more responsible. Uh, you know, me and my friends out there and, uh, had a great time and we talk about it all the time. We go back often and, uh, you know, we're, we're still true to our sports teams out there. So, um, I wouldn't change it for the world. Uh, it was probably the best decision for me to go to UNLV. Uh, obviously I'm sure the culture shock, it was insane. And being a freshman there, I can't imagine having any level of maturity and being able to control yourself. What was the social scene, the strip? I mean, were you like, did you guys hang out at the casinos? Did you go to the clubs and stuff or was it more yeah. kind of campus campus based? Well, that's, that's the thing is, you know, UNLV is not a huge college town. It's a, it's, it's a big commuter college. So, and you're about 10 minutes off the strip. Um, so early on, you know, we would find the college parties locally, but, uh, you know, then we found a sweet spot with our fake IDs. We ended up, uh, spending a lot of time at the Hooters casino. Because uh, <laughs> they were super lenient. Great wings, great yeah, wings, great wings. <laughs> they were they were super lenient on IDs. Uh, so we'd we'd be in a poker game pretty much. I mean, twice a week. And uh, you know, the clubs were a little tougher. But you know, I worked in the industry. I was working um, as a concierge at the Win. Uh, so oh, nice. Yeah, so we were able to get into you know some of the clubs and some of the lounges, and uh, obviously once we turned twenty one, um, we went pretty insane. Uh, I worked as a host as well as one of the nightclubs um, at the Bellagio, uh, so um, yeah, no, we got after it for sure. So you were actually a concierge pointing people to clubs and bars before you were of the age to actually be able to go to them yourself. Exactly, which was you know pretty insane. A lot of the hosts too, right? They want the concierge to be sending them, uh, you know. Uh, tables and, and guests and stuff. So they would come in and, you know, uh, they would invite us out for a bottle and they would have never asked if I was 21. Uh, so right. you know, I'm not going to say no to a free bottle at, you know, one of the best clubs in Vegas. So, so we'd go and we'd have a great time and, um, it's Vegas, man. I mean, everyone was kind of doing it. And, uh, that's probably the last city I think left where everyone's kind of, you know, you do me a favor, I do you a favor, you know, uh, without expecting sure. any cash, you know, it's just a business, kind of a business thing. Um, yeah, rub, you uh, scratch my back, I'll scratch it, yours. It's, it's funny though, I, I, had, I knew friends who were concierges in, actually, in Vegas and actually told me at least that their kickbacks from, you know, hosts and promoters and stuff were largely uh, greater than their salaries oh, to yeah. some degree. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I'd send, you know, a table over to a, to a host, he'd usually, you know, pop me a hundred or $200. And at that time, like I was in college. So it was like, that's a lot of money for me. <laughs> so I uh, money. And let me tell you something. I would, I would be loyal to like two or three hosts at certain clubs and I would send them, 
constantly I'd be selling, sending them business. I was actually kind of more interested in, you know, what they were doing than actually what I was doing. So, um, I, it was, a, it was an easy sell for me to, to get people to, to go out to the clubs in Vegas. Yeah. I went to college in Philly, but so Atlantic city was just under an hour away. And we used to do the same, like, you know, <laughs> underage drive down there and try to, we would go to the Sands casino cause they had $1 and $5 blackjack tables and we could actually survive, um, for a couple hours before we lost the 50 bucks that we brought with us. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you said you were playing poker at that age. I mean, I'm assuming it was pretty low stakes to start, but did you ever get to the point where you felt like you could be a professional poker player or was it sort of a casual thing that you did for entertainment? Oh, well, let me tell you something. Um, we, um, so yeah, we just, we would play a one, two, no limit game at, at Hooters, but when we weren't at the casino playing, we were playing online because online poker was so um, it was huge. Um, so my buddy Austin, I mean, he'd be playing online. We'd all we'd have a table set up in our family room of our laptops, and we would just be playing online poker. Um, I would say for a good solid year, we were playing just about every day. Um, my buddy John would lock himself up in his room and try to qualify for, you know, world poker tour events and, um, you know, uh, uh, never made it came close, but, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time playing online poker. So I, I, would you say that you were a good poker player or were you, did you spend a year losing money? I, you know, I was, uh, I would say I was decent. You know, I probably thought I was better than I really was, but, uh, everyone does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, no, it was fun. I mean, we obviously like hold them too was just like getting really big cause they started, uh, you know, really televising it on, on you know, the yeah. world series of poker and stuff. So, I mean, we loved it. I mean, those guys like Scotty Wynn and, you know, all those guys were, and, uh, Sammy Farha, all those guys were just like, those were like celebrities to us, you know, cause yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we, uh, we really loved playing poker. I met Scotty, uh, in Vegas in October at world CryptoCon when I went out there to, uh, give a speech, uh, there was a big celebrity poker tournament and he was sort of the, the pro. Of course I, I left when there were four people left, but of course he was still sitting there at the final table. Oh, I think course. people can't appreciate that. It was, it's almost inevitable even in a game that's quote unquote gambling or a game of chance that, the, the the cream rises to the top and those guys are just going to beat beat everyone it's impressive man it's really impressive like daniel legrand who's i feel like is always would sit at the final table somehow the guy was just a beast yeah they always find their way there it's, it's interesting because a lot i find that a lot of uh either amateur or professional poker players find their way into trading for mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. and particularly crypto trading i do see i mean we'll get into obviously your crypto story and stuff and so people know that <laughs> there's a reason that you're here beyond just being the guy from the bachelor obviously mm -hmm. you, you exist in this space um but do you see parallels between playing poker and trading yeah i mean it's it's gambling <laughs> you know but at the same <laughs> at the same time you know if, if you're managing your risk and um you know it's all about risk management you know it's 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 about still leaving yourself an opportunity, um, you know, instead of pushing all the chips in the middle of the pot all the time. Uh, and I, that's, that's how it is with trading too. I, I was probably more disciplined playing cards than I was, than I am with trading. So, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, and it's, it's, it's the rush. It's the adrenaline. It's, it's about being right. Um, and it's about playing something perfectly and then uh, learning from your mistakes. Right. But the funny thing is that all of those, I think instincts, you know, like you said, every Everybody gets the rush. It's inevitable. And you probably become really good when you eliminate those things. Um, you know, the true. day that you sort of become more stone cold and a bit more of a robot is when you kind of maybe see the light and the losses hurt a little less. And, the you know, the wins are a little less satisfying as well, I would imagine. But you definitely touch there on risk management. I think that's a huge, I mean, you, you know, that's sort of everything I preach when it comes to trading and you talk about pushing your chips in and, you know, you would never go all in with your entire bankroll, even if you're going all in with what you have on the table, you know, right, right. And I think people don't understand that necessarily when they're trading and they really do go all in to these things and get somewhat destroyed. So I, I know that you uh, are an alt trader and that you, you trade altcoins. Uh, do you, how do you manage sort of your portfolio when you're doing that, decide on what size positions to take and what to go into? Honestly, I, I'm super low risk currently. Um, yeah. Um, I would say I, I haven't really been traded that much. A lot of my uh, portfolio in crypto is uh, sitting in Bitcoin and mostly 
majors. Um, and then a small portion of that would just be kind of, um, you know, trading here and there. But, uh, you know, when it was, uh, it's different now. I mean, during like the bull run in 2017, you were basically just flipping altcoins and just make, <laughs> making a killing, you know? Yeah, you couldn't um, lose. You literally couldn't lose. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. doing, I was doing market buys on, I mean, stuff I'd never even heard of in my life, like, um, you know, like the bread wallet. Um, and I remember hitting the button, I put like five grand in it and I felt like I made it go up, you know, with my buy order <laughs> and, and you know, have. Right? <laughs> and, and I'm like, Holy, I'm like, Holy shit. Like now it's 15,000. I've been sitting here for an hour and it was, it, I don't think we'll ever see something like that again with, um, you know, with, with altcoins and stuff. Cause that was, Honestly, the three months or four or five months or whatever it was, I mean, I wasn't leaving the house. I would go to the gym and then I'd look at my phone and be like, holy shit, like I got to go. I got to go check on this because this is insane. Um, so like it was like this this money making opportunity that was almost seemed unreal. Um, and it was I mean, I was pretty much obsessed with it. And uh, now it's just like I'm way more careful with with it uh, because, you know, I definitely left a lot of money on the table, um, you know, in 2017. But I think a lot everyone of everyone did. Yeah, 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 I think that everyone did. The, uh, the concept of the paper millionaire was never more somewhat uh, clear than the end of the 2017, early 2018 bull run. I mean, people were rich, but but for, I, I believe that almost nobody cashed out. I have no idea what the actual truth is, but from judging sort of sentiment going through, I think that everyone expected that party somewhat to to never end. I mean, I, I had the same experience as you. It just felt like you had to stay up all night just to capitalize on all the opportunity. Um, and it was crazy because I'd never been that way with trading at all. I've traded in legacy markets. So you, you trade stocks, you're not really you know, waking up at one o'clock in the morning to see what's happening. And mm -hmm. so I, I, you know, I, I've definitely gotten over that, uh, in the last few years, but it really was a kind of a special moment in time. Um, do you think that some coins will have that kind of run again? Or do you think that in general, it's just not the, the nature of the market now? I don't know. I feel like, I don't feel like the same volume is there. I don't think the, the retailer investor is there, obviously as much as it was, um, uh, you know, back during the bull run. So it's like, you know, who are you dumping your coins on? And um, yeah, the, li the liquidity isn't, you know, it's just, it's not there. Uh, and Binance is, it's a little weird now to trade on, especially, you know, um, in the States. As an American. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I was doing most of my trading on Binance. And um, once that whole thing went down, I, I pretty much got out of alts completely. Uh, so I was just sitting in Bitcoin and, um, um, yeah, I, I honestly I don't trade a lot of crypto uh, anymore, uh, but I, you know I I dive into it here and there. But uh, I don't I don't honestly I hope like there's one more of those because obviously 2017 was a learning experience for for me and I'm sure a lot of people. Now you'd be ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, I wouldn't be looking for the you know 500 600 percent gains. I would be cutting out way before that, just taking profits um, and you know sitting in cash and just putting in Bitcoin and you know. Uh, I believe in Bitcoin, so you know, and seeing where that goes. Um, but now, you know, it's like, do you get that other opportunity? Uh, hopefully, we do. Yeah. So you have an amazing story of how you got into crypto. Um, could you tell everybody exactly how you got interested in Bitcoin and how that happened? Yeah. So 2016, I was living in LA, and um, you know, I would, I, you know, I had the whole gambling thing inside of me, so I was. You know, I'd bet on sports and um, I was betting on an offshore accounts, uh, offshore account sports book. And I put like, a, I think it was like an $80 parlay on a six team NBA like night slate and uh, was lucky enough to hit it. And granted, you know, whenever I would put money into my accounts, I probably would never cash it out because I mostly would lose something, lose most of it all the time. But anyway, this was a pretty solid hit. It was, it was for a few thousand bucks. And, uh, you know, the only way to cash out was was through Bitcoin. And at that time, you know, all I knew about Bitcoin was, you know, black market stuff, how it's used to buy drugs and Silk Road and, you know, all that stuff. And I'm mm -hmm. like, so I'm like, all right, I got to, I got to, you know, I got to research this. How do I get the Bitcoin from this offshore account from going knows where, um, you know, into a wallet and then, you know, cash it out to my PayPal or what have you. So researched it. Got super interested in it. Um, at the time, I think the wallet that I downloaded was Bitpanda, and um, so I got—I finally got the Bitcoin into my into my wallet. 
And, um, you know, after doing a lot of research, um, you know, I got really interested in, in Bitcoin itself and, you know, kind of learning a lot about uh, the price action over the, the previous years. And, uh, you know, then I kind of, you know, started to learn about blockchain and got interested into that. Uh, so I decided to just kind of let it sit there uh, for a while. I think in 2016, uh, it was probably around between 400 and $600 Bitcoin was trading oh, at. Man. Yeah. <laughs> What so, a gift. I know. And you know what? Honestly, I did. If I left it all, I I had more in there. And if I just left it, I'm sure a lot of people say that too. But um, you know, I, does, yeah. Yeah, I left I left about half of it in there and uh, just forgot about it. And uh, obviously, you know, when uh, Bitcoin started going, I mean, just going crazy uh, in 2017, um, a lot of that money, obviously, you know, had more value. And um, I started diving into... Uh, you know, alts from that Bitcoin. And I, I crushed like, I mean, honestly, my, my first uh, alt that I bought was, uh, was XRP. Uh, so yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a lot, not because, you know, I'm like part of the whole XRP gang by any means, but uh, there was a lot of talk about it. My buddy's like, put some money to this. It's I'm, amazing that everybody needs to like preface their XRP <laughs> buy with some sort of excuse. And we were I'm all not, there. I'm, it's not, so I'm not one video. of those soldiers by I'm any means. I'm part of the community <laughs> member. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think I got it like around, I don't know, I don't know, 13, 12 cents and um, uh, watched man. it run up to like $3.60. Um, but yeah, dude, I mean, I was just throwing that money that I made from you know, that's uh, from being lucky, honestly. And like, dude, ICX and uh, XRP and all these things, like they'll always have a place in my heart. <laughs> Mine too. Uh, yeah. For better or for worse. Yeah, dude. I mean, ICX ran up. I mean, we bought it probably like under a dollar and it ran up to, geez, I don't know, $12 or something. It was insane. Yeah. I mean, that's really a, a pretty crazy story. So when you think about it, you made a bet you expected to lose for like $80, which turned into $5,000. And then because it was Bitcoin, you put it away for $5,000 and it went up yeah, at 40x or whatever. Tremendously. It's just under 40 times. So it all started with one kind of YOLO parlay bet. Yep. It was, uh, there was a less than 1% chance of any of that happening. So I was grateful for that to happen. And, you know, not only because of the, the monetary aspect, but, uh, just being able to, you know, learn about something, you know, new and actually being interested in it. You know, I, you know, from there, I never stopped being involved with, you know, different crypto projects and, and blockchain and, you know, hitting conferences here and there and just learning more, you know, it's even now in 2020, it's still, you know, in its infancy and, um, a lot more people yeah. know about it. So it's, um, I like to be, you know, educated on it and talk about it. And, you know, even some of my friends that were part of that bull run with me who, you know, watched all that money, you know, disappear, essentially, you know, they're, they're kind of bitter about and it. More. But, oh, yeah. and more and more, of, of course they're, you know, but I'm still, you know, I'm a believer, you know, outside of the monetary aspect. And, um, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm still holding strong here and, and grateful for, you know, just getting involved in it. Uh, it it's really interesting because I, I always kind of joke that the people who got the richest in, in Bitcoin, well, you know, people hate, early adopters hate when you say they were lucky because that's not necessarily fair. They were willing to put their money. But there's so many right. stories like yours where it really was luck and the ability to just not micromanage it and allow it to grow by either forgetting about it or just not being that concerned about it. And I really mm -hmm. think that that's how a ton of people made a ton of money. I I knew a guy who was using Bitcoin for the uh, purposes that you laid out before to some degree, you know, mm -hmm. like buying drugs on Silk Road. And he had 10 wallets that all had Bitcoin dust in them <laughs> to him from 2013-14. We're, we're talking about when Bitcoin was like, he had $20 worth here and $100 worth there, but you know, which could be a couple of Bitcoin. And he forgot about it. And when he went back into all of his wallets in 2017, he cashed out for a few hundred thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. Good for him to still yeah. have access to those wallets. Yeah, seriously. But I mean, it's incredible. That's a better performance than anybody who's like blood, sweat, and tears in the industry working their ass off trading and trying to understand the tech. And, you know, it's it's incredible that people were able you know, kind of have that story uh, like you did. Absolutely. Just amazing to me. So um, 
Let's talk a bit more about uh, what you're doing now. I know that you're you went to school, I believe, for hospitality. Is that is that correct? And you talked about being a concierge and, and working in the clubs and everything. Yeah. So um, you know, early on, I was always interested in you know the restaurant space and food space. Um, I actually worked for Oprah Winfrey's personal chef when I was in high school. Um, so I was totally interested in um, you know culinary and, and the hospitality stuff. And UNLV's. Um, usually one or two in the nation for top hospitality schools. Um, so, you know, from there, I, it was in the nightclub industry, hotels, and uh, et cetera. And um, I actually, you know, uh, my fourth year in Vegas, I was ready to go, man. I was I was so burnt out. And uh, one of my clients, uh, I was working at a club called the Rock Nightclub at the New York, New York at the time. And one of my clients was um, one of the team doctors for the New York Yankees and the New York Islanders. And uh, I was telling him, like, dude, I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like, I don't know if I'm going to survive one more year. Um, he's like, oh, you know, why don't you come work for one of the teams? And I'm like, all right. You know, just thinking, like, this is not going to happen. But, of course. Yeah. So I flew out um, and I interviewed with the, the actual owner. I mean, this is me. I was 22 or whatever the hell I was. Um, met with the owner in the owner's box at the Islanders uh, Arena during a hockey game. And, you know, they brought me on to be... Uh, um, sales executive. Uh, so I was selling like, you know, the in-ice logos and the the advertising on the boards. I was selling seats, uh, tickets and all, all that stuff. So I moved out to New York. And it's funny how this all kind of like comes together uh, because uh, I, you know, what the biggest thing about going to Vegas for me was the whole networking aspect and the people that I met, um, you know, cause you're getting, a, you're getting new people daily, uh, weekly. I mean, just new people coming in from all over the world. Um, and it's kind of how you take advantage of that. And, uh, just from the people I met, you know, that doctor, you know, from there I got the job with New York and in New York, I got tied in with, dude, I was the ultimate hustler. Like if I wasn't making the most money on the sales team, then I was failing. Even if I was the youngest one there, um, I came across, um, my current business partner, uh, Jeff Greenberg. Um, he's, so he's a wholesaler to StubHub. So he buys, you know, he's like a broker, buys a bunch of tickets. Um, and he's been since day one on StubHub and I sold him and I sold him like two, $3 million worth of Islander tickets. <laughs> and, oh, wow. uh, and I, you know, at that time I was making like 15, 20% commission because the Islanders were just the worst team in the yeah, NFL. <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, at that, it was, it was a good amount of money, but from then, you know, Jeff, you know, he was in the restaurant space. He was, um, uh, investing in places called, uh, good stuff eatery, which is a hamburger joint, um, out on the East coast. And I told him like, listen, like my dreams always been to open up my own restaurants. Um, you know, I'll, I have this kind of experience with the school for it. Um, and at the time he was the money man and he's like, um, you know, let's think about it. And, you know, from there, I got asked to go on the show the first time in 2012. Did you, did you like audition yourself or did somebody put you up for it or someone just, you, you know, you, you met somebody? How does that happen? So this girl I grew up with, one of my best friends growing up, she nominated me to be the bachelor. Um, and I was living in New York at the time. I was getting these emails from casting and I was like, what, what is this? I never even watched the show before. Um, and then they were like at, um, they had like a casting call right where I was living. So I went over there they pretty much casted me on the spot. I'm like, yeah, why, you know, I'm 25. Why wouldn't I do this? Um, you know, so yeah. I, w I went on the show and honestly it all ties together, you know, from the show, obviously you get all this exposure. Um, you know, Jeff, my business partner at the restaurant, he's like, all right, I'm going to put up, you know, half of the money. Like the marketing is there because people want to come see you. Let's open up this right. restaurant. We agreed on Arlington, Virginia. Dude, when we opened that place, there was a line. I mean, I can't even explain. We were, we were slam packed every day. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful, obviously, for him. Uh, you know, taking the chance and then, you know, for the show, for giving me that. Right. Yeah, I'm sure he's equally as grateful to you for being the face of the, the business and being able to draw the people. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great, great partnership. Great deal. I mean, we that was probably I mean, that year had to be probably one of the funnest years of my lives and a successful year as well. So I, I definitely understand the appeal of the show. Very strong appeal if you are the bachelor, like I said, and you're like you're dating 25, 30 women. Mm -hmm. 
I think that that's pretty much a dream. What's it like to be on the other side of that and be one of 25 or 30 people that's trying to date the same girl? Yeah. You know, when you're there, you don't actually think about it that way. Like you're competing for the same person because you're spending most of the time with the guys actually. But right. at the, at the same time, you're, like. you're traveling the world. And at that time, like I didn't, I wasn't even, uh, I'd never been to Europe. Um, I mean, we traveled the whole Eastern block of Europe. I mean, we were in Bermuda and like, for me, it was the experience. And to top it off, I actually was interested in the girl. Um, so it was like a perfect storm for me. It, it is weird. It, it's a competition at the end of the day. It's like, you know, if there was 25 guys left in the world and there's just one girl and you know, you're, you're competing for this girl, it seems like, cause you're That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. You're, you're cut off from the, you're cut off from everything. There's no phone. There's no TV. I mean, you are, you are dialed in on this girl. And, um, you know, it's weird at first, but honestly, you, the guys become friends. And again, <laughs> I looked at it as another networking opportunity. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, from a social media side too, obviously, you know, Instagram wasn't really a thing yet, but from Twitter, I mean, I didn't even have a Twitter. I turned on my Twitter after I, after the, I was done filming and I was just, it's like almost dollar signs, you know, when you're getting all these Twitter followers yeah. and you just have this new platform to, to reach a people that, you know, you wouldn't even be connected with otherwise. Um, so the show is, man, I'm telling you, the first show was amazing because you have no expectations. Um, I had, I never watched the show before. My mom watched it and um, I thought I was going to be there for, you know, one night and I ended up staying, you know, pretty much toward to till the end. Um, so it was, um, it was good, man. When you go into things with low expectations and you get the most out of it, uh, it's pretty, yeah. um, it's pretty satisfying. So, uh, my wife is a huge fan of the show, like every other person's wife. Um, is, did, I have to know because I've watched it a few times. It seems like there's almost a language to the show, like, uh, certain things that everybody says, like mm -hmm. she's someone that I could see or he's someone or that, 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 that phrase, do they sort of feed you guys lines to some degree when you do your interviews or does everybody just sort of pick up the same vernacular and way of doing it because it's the way it's done? Oh man, these producers, I'm telling you, the reason why the show has been on as long as it has been is because these producers are the best in the business. And, uh, I, I believe it. If they weren't there teeing me up with lines, nobody would watch the show. Um, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not funny, you know, maybe once in a while, like I'll have something funny to say, but uh, you're pretty funny. <laughs> I'm not that funny, but these, these guys, I'm telling you, like they tee you up and make you seem like either an asshole or a funny person or a nice guy. And they have it all planned. I'm telling you like 75% of the storyline is already planned ahead of time. Um, of course. And, uh, you know, without them, I mean, there's obviously no show, but, uh, yeah, the lines that you hear, um, like, you know, uh, journey or, you know, stuff like that, then they're, they're teeing you up. But over time, I'm sure, you know, these contestants, they watch the show. So it's kind of almost embedded in their heads already. Yeah. You're there for the right reasons, man. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was, I was definitely there for the right reasons because I didn't know the other reasons. So I think I was there for the right reasons the first time around. It's interesting because the, the, you touched on it, you know, you turned on your Twitter and you started to be able to monetize that. And those are the other reasons. So for you, it was sort of a byproduct, but not a plan. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you touched on being able to monetize it, obviously with the sports bar and the restaurant, were there other ways that sort of, you know, your fame paid off monetarily after the show beyond besides going back on the show five more times yeah no so it's so different honestly i i there was there was a golden era i consider like when i first started doing the show then there's the modern era which is now before it was so much harder to monetize your social media following on twitter um before we were making money outside of whatever we were doing on appearances events um and and stuff like that uh and then, you know, you know, for it's just how you use it. You know, I made an actual business out of it, you know, with the restaurants. Um, otherwise, it's just a flash in the pan and it goes away overnight because uh, you become irrelevant. Um, you know, nowadays, I mean, phew, man, some of these some of these girls are are clearing a million dollars a year and just doing Instagram advertising. Um, oh, I'm and, sure. And brand partnerships. You know, I got a small taste of it this first time around. I mean, I didn't make much. I would say, I mean, it is, I mean, granted, it is a lot of money. I would say I probably cleared like, you know, 50 grand over the last, you know, over the three months, like after the show was airing. Um, right. 
I'm not, I, I don't like to, you know, promote products that I don't actually use. So I did turn I it down. Way, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to promote like, I don't know, like a shoe or something that's just BS. Like it's going to be something that I actually use. Um, so it was, but these girls, man, I'm telling you, they're slinging stuff that you never even heard of and they're getting paid, you know, 15 grand for three Instagram slides. It's absolutely insane. Um, and obviously like the top celebrities, like, Kendall Jenner and them, they're making a million dollars in Instagram posts. Um, right. And they're not even doing it. It's their people. <laughs> exactly. They're not doing anything. They're just the face. And that's why the show to me is so not authentic anymore compared to how it used to be because you have people coming on the show primarily because they see the opportunity of monetizing their Instagrams. Um, and it sucks, man. I'm telling you, it's completely different from 2012 from when I was first on the show to this last summer. I, I, it was just like a bunch of young kids running around finding ways on how to get more Instagram followers. And, uh, I get it. Like a lot of you know, these people don't, uh, have careers or they're kind of stuck in a, in a place where they need something <laughs> to kind of keep them afloat. And, Listen, like I'm all for like making the most of opportunities, um, but it's it's just so different. I mean, I was shocked by you know I took three years off from the show, so when I went back this summer, it was a completely different aspect. Uh, that's interesting because we made the joke: Are you there for the right reasons? But it seems that now it would be very rare that somebody, I guess, somewhat would be. I would say zero. I would say one percent are there actually for the right reason. Um, They're all just there to be famous. A hundred percent, hundred percent, and you know, I would say only it only works out really for you know five to ten percent of the people that are on the previous show. And again, you can have three hundred thousand Instagram followers, but you still become irrelevant, you know, eventually, um, and your yeah. engage your engagement goes down. So it's 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 a it's a it's a flash in the pan again. That's why. If you're not, if you're not, um, you know, making some kind of other business or some kind of maybe, you know, selling your own product or, or some kind of e-commerce business based off of your free marketing, you're reaching thousands of people on your Instagram channel. If you're not setting that up in three months, you're not making any more money on Instagram. You're, you're just not because you're irrelevant. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money has gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. Roundlyx, that's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com. Go sign up now. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. Right, it's a slow trickle into irrelevance too, which has to be pretty painful for a lot of the people because, I mean, even you know my experience in the as a DJ for 20 years in the music business, it, you see that with almost every single person who gets any level of fame in mm -hmm. any sort of industry like this. I mean, how many people who have been on The Voice or American Idol does anyone remember now? And that's the biggest platform in the world, basically, to be able to sing. So I think it's that's probably even amplified and, and a bit more dramatic for people who don't get to those sort of same heights. Um, so you, you very quickly touched on the fact that you were worked for Oprah's private chef. I have to go back to that. My wife, again, she's the biggest Oprah fan. I think she says she learned every important life lesson she ever needed from watching Oprah Winfrey. So <laughs> what was it like to have contact with her when you were that young? How old were you? How did that happen? So it was, it's, a, it's actually a great story. Um, 
my I was 15 years old and my girlfriend in high school, her like uncle was running um, a catering business, like a temp temp service kind of catering business. And uh, I was like, dude, like in the summer, like that's, I'll get make some extra money. And uh, he set me up at this private event. It was for the CEO of Fannie Mae at the time. Oddly enough, his name was Michael Jordan, but not the actual Michael Jordan. In um, Chicago, of all of all things, yeah. Exactly. In Chicago, you know, me and my buddy Keith, we got placed at that job. We're like, "Holy shit, is this Michael Jordan?" Because you know, obviously, big Michael Jordan guys coming from Chicago. Yeah, of course. Um, we show up. It's not Michael Jordan, but granted, we're in this ten million dollar home in you know in the north side of Chicago, and uh, we basically got paired up with Ron Bellaro, who was Oprah's chef at the time. And uh, from there, he asked us like if we would just want to work for him, and. Uh, we're like, yeah. I mean, we were making 10 bucks an hour, I think, at the temp service. He was paying killing us. It. Killing it. He's crushing, you know? Um, and then he's like, I'll pay you this much a night, plus you get tipped. And we're like, absolutely. So Keith and I, we were not qualified for this, for doing these private events by any means. But Ron, like, kind of, like, took us under his wing. Um, so we were doing these private events. Um, we worked on the sets uh, at Op- at uh, the Oprah Winfrey show a couple times. And just being around the whole... I mean, the atmosphere is insane. Obviously, Oprah's, like, the, you know, most influential woman of our time. Um, yes. So just being around that and, you know, it was an experience to be 15, 16 years old, it, I don't think you can beat it, uh, to be honest with you. And I just because of that and being around that and seeing how much people appreciate, you know, the food, the service, the hospitality really kind of, you know, really got my interest in, in the space at all. I like, you know, I like to see people enjoying their time or enjoying, you know, food or drink or, or what have you. And, uh, you know, being around, you know, someone of her celebrity and seeing how she appreciated it. Um, you know, that meant a lot to me for sure. I mean, is she as kind and generous and polite and amazing as she seems on TV? Absolutely. Um, very welcoming. Uh, didn't, she didn't seem different than anybody else, you know, that was there. Uh, so, which was amazing for us again, you know, growing up, you know, when we were younger, I mean, Oprah, you know, my, my mom and, you know, everyone was just like all about it. And, uh, you never would think you'd have the opportunity to be like standing in the same room as her. Uh, so especially at that age, I mean, exactly, exactly. It kind of like, it really, it makes you grow up real quick too, you know, at that age. Cause you know, one night you're, you know, you're playing football on Friday night and going out, um, you know, and drinking with the boys. And then, then you're like in this professional setting with this top A-list celebrity, working. Uh, so it was like you were getting both sides of the spectrum um, at a young age. And uh, I think that was that was huge for me in, in, as far as even even my buddy Keith, he's still in the hospitality space. He's running some restaurants out in Chicago. So I think, you know, early on having those experiences really kind of made us fall in love with the hospitality industry. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the Islanders that you're just kind of a hustler and you always had to be the best and always had to be, you know, making the most as a salesman and competing. You know, where do you think that you got that hustle? I mean, you, you ended up at Oprah's house when you were 15. So clearly you were a hustler of some sort. You know what? I, I think, you know, my parents are so traditional. Like my mom works for the same company for 30 years. She worked for General Motors from when she was 19 she retired when she was 49. I mean, it's so much different. And I, I kind of, I didn't want that. You know, I, she was happy and comfortable and all that stuff, but I wanted to try different things. I wanted to find different ways to make money. Um, and I, 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 I hate saying like I was an opportunist. I think people like kind of look down on that. But man, I was. When I saw an opportunity, when I saw other people making money doing certain things, I wanted to try to do that as well. Um, and even you know, with the Islanders, when I was actually selling tickets to my now business partner, who was a huge ticket broker, I'm like, dude, I'm like, how can I make money selling tickets too? You know, of my own and making profit. And you know, he taught me a little bit. I still, dude, I still go get deals for tickets. And even. <laughs> Even now that I'm not associated with the Islanders, like I'll I'll find deals um, and and we'll we'll sell tickets. I mean, anywhere to make you know some some money. I just get a kind of a rush out of the whole sales aspect of you know any kind of business and 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 seeing if there's you know an opportunity to to make money elsewhere besides you know what my actual profession is. So to some degree, it was you sort of saw how you know the 1950s American dream mentality get a job, stay there for 50 years, white picket fence was just changing. It was not really for you. So you went kind of 
even though that's obviously a great lesson from your parents, you sort of chose to go the opposite way. Mm -hmm. I did. I went the complete opposite way because right now, I mean, I would say my, you know, my day to day is it's so sporadic and nomadic. <laughs> and, you know, I'm 33. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, you know, my, my parents, they had, they were married when they were 22. They had all three of us kids by the time they were 29. And, um, it's very, it was a very traditional way of doing things. And now I'm just, I'm just, I'm the complete opposite, man. I'm, I'm really enjoying this kind of not knowing where I actually live and, you know, um, just being involved in, in different things. Um, even, you know, I started to get involved in real estate. I know you actually talked about that a little bit on Twitter recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been, you know, going down and got some deals down in Mexico, um, out of all places. And, uh, it's been great, man. I'm just, kind of learning about different kind of, um, you know, industries. And I think it allows me, you know, the flexibility of, of, um, just kind of having my own thing and kind of having different rev, uh, avenues of revenue everywhere. Um, just, I just get to experience a lot of things. And for me, that that's a lot more than the monetary aspect of things. It's just to of be course. able to, you know, have those experiences. Yeah. That was the best part of DJing obviously was what town will I wake right. up in next? What adventure will I have? Who will I meet? Um, okay. So you have the sports bar, you're doing real estate in Mexico. You're occasionally selling tickets for the Islanders. What else does your day-to-day look like? What other projects? <laughs> so honestly, my, the most, my highest folks right now is I actually have a digital agency. Um, we're based out of Santa Monica. Uh, we opened about four years ago. So just as a hobby, again, this was another opportunity time. Um, my girlfriend at the time, her, um, she worked for a huge hedge fund out of Beverly Hills and, her boss uh, had a yacht, you know, docked out in uh, Dubrovnik, Croatia. And he's like, it's like, I need a, we- you know, a website refresh. Like my, he had a website from like when the internet just started, you know? Um, and um, I was doing some consulting work for my buddy. We were raising some capital for um, a media company out in um, Irvine. And uh, so I met uh, my other partner now for my buddy, my company called KCM creates, who is a web developer and then my buddy Mike, who's a web designer, I'm like, listen, like we'll do this, we'll do it for dirt cheap, we'll do this website, we'll do it 2,500 bucks, like let's do it, like as a hobby. So we did it, built this beautiful website, had a great time, you know, doing it. We so were like, shit, like maybe we could just throw up a website of our own and see if there's any more business that comes in. KCM create, KCM is our initials of, you know, how simple is that? Um, and uh, so we actually. So this all, it's crazy how this all circles back. And I don't, you know, get to talk about all these things often, but so our, you can talk as much as you want. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. So it's like, it all comes full circle again. So Las Vegas is where I went to school. I worked in the nightclub industry and our biggest client right now um, is from Las Vegas, Mandalay Bay, click hospitality. So light nightclub inside of Mandalay Bay and mm-hmm. um, uh, daylight, uh, which is their day club. The owner and founder of Click Hospitality was my boss at uh, the Bank Nightclub at the Bellagio when I was in college. Um, I <laughs> kind of just reached out on a limb, like, listen, like, you know, we're doing, you know, websites, we're doing some search engine marketing, some SEO, some paid social media. And dude, he threw 16 different bars, lounges, nightclubs, hotels. He's like, can you do these? And we're like, Dude, honestly, at the time, there was zero chance we could do that. There was like three of us doing this. And Find a way. We found a way, and it literally launched our business. And uh, and it's in hospitality. So we've been working with um, with those uh, properties for you know three years. Uh, we have clients uh, all across the country. You know, from hospitality to beauty um, to advertising companies, um, all across, man. And it's, it's unbelievable. You know, we have a small team, but you know, we have, you know, 20, 30 contractors working for us at one time. We do content creation we write blogs. We do video creation we do commercials, man. We do, we do it all. And it's, uh, it's something that I was never really educated on. And I kind of learned as I went, um, and I'm kind of just kind of the quarterback of all this stuff, but, uh, Man, it was again an opportunity that we saw, and we took it and we ran with it, and it and it's been working. Um, it's it's my primary income right now, and it's uh, it's fun, man. I get to go all over the country and actually all over North America and and uh, work with like different types of businesses and and help them out. Do you guys accept Bitcoin? 
We do. We do. And it's, you know what, you know, it's funny, Scott, is in 2017, you know, when all these public companies were like putting blockchain, you know, uh, on their, on their, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, just like yeah. their stock would go up. We're like, yep. uh, we're like, oh shit, we're throwing blockchain on our website because it was the number one search, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain. Everyone was searching that on the internet. So we yeah. just threw it on our website. We had no blockchain experience, but like if someone wanted some help with some blockchain, I had some guys, you know, from, from Russia that I knew that were, <laughs> you know, dialed in on blockchain. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, again, we were just kind of tying everything at the time and going with the trend and uh, taking advantage of it for sure. I mean, what a time to be alive when publicly traded companies could change their name to blockchain and a stock traded on the New York Stock Exchange would go up like, you know, 100%. And I remember, you know, alts would, altcoins would like rebrand their logo and they would pump five times on a, on a rebrand. And it's so irrational. So irrational. Like, oh, the main net is on September 28th. Like it's going to go up 300%. You know, it's, it was so ridiculous. I remember, um, you know, the big thing was, oh, you know, something's going to be launched on Binance. Like this is it. And so it was towards the tail ends of the bull run. And so I was highly in uh, ICX and um, Aon and one chain was like the next one, right? Everyone wants to get into one and, uh, yep. and they kept pushing back the release because it started, I mean, the bear market just hit like crazy. And I just remember like sitting there, I swear for like five days, we were sitting in front of our computers waiting for this thing to get launched onto Binance. And by the time it did get launched, I mean, I think Bitcoin was probably shot down to like $5,000 and we're like, man, yeah, I our, remember our, our hopes and dreams were just destroyed. So going back to being a hustler, do you remember kind of what your first hustles were when you were a little kid? Were you like a lemonade stand guy? Were you selling candy at school? I mean, what do you remember being your first sort of forays into, you know, being your own businessman and, and hustling? Baseball cards. Same. Uh, yeah. hundred percent. I was I was flipping baseball cards with like all my friends in the neighborhood at school. Um, now you know baseball cards. I feel like are you know they're worthless <laughs> most of them, but they're literally I, worthless if they're from the eighties. Exactly, beyond. exactly. I feel like they're trying. To, you know who uh, does a good job with uh, baseball cards is Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, he's always trying to rip uh, cards on online and stuff. Um, but dude, we, we would be flipping baseball cards and, uh, even like, um, what just for the fun of it, like, Oh, like I'll trade you two, uh, Bo Jackson's for, you know, one Ryan Sandberg, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, so, that, that's that Chicago hustle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ryan Sandberg, everybody needs the, the Cubs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, just like seeing how you can get um, a little extra value out of, you know, trading something for another thing. I think that's kind of where it all kind of started for me. And honestly, being in sports too, like I was super competitive. I think I got a lot of, you know, of my business mentality and trying to figure things out on my own just from being, you know, in sports um, and not, you know, obviously I was in team sports, but uh, you know, there's no, no me and team, but uh, I felt like I wanted to do a lot of things on my own and, you know, uh, I was super competitive and I think um, that led me into kind of where I'm at today. It's actually funny. I, my dad and I were huge into baseball cards. It was sort of the thing that we did together. Um, you know, it was our main activity. I was growing up in Florida, so we'd go to uh, spring training everywhere and get everybody's autograph. And it was just sort of our father-son bonding thing. But so we, that was my first investments. I would save up all my money and I would go buy, you know, a box of wax packs or something that I was <laughs> going to save for a hundred years and I was going to retire on them. So my parents were downsizing their house a few years ago and I went back. I mean, I have some valuable cards, mostly stuff that he had collected. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so I was like, what am I going to do with all these wax packs? They got to be worth something. So I took them to the local baseball card store. I knew that I was in for bad news, but he was like, I won't even take these to throw them in the dumpster behind, <laughs> you know? And so maybe I'd spent like 30 bucks on one of these boxes and they were quite literally worth nothing. Uh -huh. So all of that stuff, besides I kept, you know, the individual cards that were worthwhile or full sets that I had or anything that was somewhat sentimental. And there's some stuff with value, but I went to the local library donation center for a write-off of a couple hundred bucks. I probably spent thousands and thousands of mm -hmm. all the money I'd earned in the eighties mm -hmm. on baseball cards. And I went and donated it to get a, you know, a few hundred dollar write-off so that kids, you know, so that, uh, 
less privileged kids could open some baseball cards from 1987 <laughs> tops. Um, but it was a, you know, it's a, like you said, it's kind of a real lesson in, you know, value and investing. And that was a time when we thought, you know, we, I was buying baseball cards for less thinking I'd be able to sell them for more. You know, that's, that's cool though. I mean, even though it's, it's an L at the end of the day, but you know, just that mentality at a young age is still, it's still cool. Cause you're like, you're buying something because you think it's going to be more valuable, you know? Um, and for me, it was, it was that too. Like I loved baseball though. And it's like, I was hoping to get, you know, a Ken Griffey Jr. in this pack or, or, or whoever it may be. But I was like, I'm going to hold on to these because I think, you know, when I'm my parents' age, they're going to be more valuable, you know, and obviously. And all of our parents talked about how their parents threw their baseball cards away. It's like an oh, urban myth. All the time. Like, oh, they're probably, you know, throwing a bunch of Babe Ruths in the garbage, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that stuck with me and I could never throw them away <laughs> ever. So obviously we talked about um, the positive sides, the able to monetize the fame that comes with being on TV, but we didn't really talk about the downside mm-hmm. of being a public figure. I mean, I know that you went through a time where you were kind of one of the villains on the show, perhaps. Yep. Um, and how did that affect you? What is it like for people to have a negative perception of you because of what they see on TV? Yeah, it sucks. Um, I, you know, from the bachelorette to bachelor pad, you know, on the bachelorette, I was the young kind of charming, sweet, innocent guy. And then I went to bachelor pad and I just wrecked that show. Um, you know, I was, <laughs> again, it was a competition show, super competitive. Um, and they like to do that. They like to turn the nice guy into the bad guy because that guy has the biggest, you know, following or people are the most interested in that. At the end of the day, like if I looked back and kind of was just watching, you know, as everything was actually happening, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, but, you know, they made it seem like I was this horrible person. And I'm sure I probably put myself in, you know, positions that uh, I probably shouldn't have been in, but whatever, man, I signed up for it. Um, But yeah, so, you know, you get that uh, overnight fame from being on that show, you know, Twitter and all this, uh, you know, media, newspapers. Uh, For me, the hardest part was, yeah, you know, getting the negativity, the trolls on the internets and because it was new, right? And I didn't know how to really handle it. Uh, But for me, it was... um, you know, for me, the hardest part was, uh, you know, my parents, you know, reading that stuff or my sisters reading that stuff. Um, I always wondered about that because, yeah. I mean, your parents are watching, you know, no matter what, who you are on that show. Yeah. And you know what? At the end of the day, my, you know, obviously my friends and family know who I am for real. But, you know, when you see, you know, your old man reading, you know, an article on Yahoo about how I'm an asshole and how I'm a player and this and that and, you know, reading negative, you know, especially in the comments on those articles, uh, you know, people are ruthless. Uh, So it's like someone, you know, like my dad, who was obviously like my hero and someone that would do anything in the world for me, like reading these things and like being disappointed. Um, that was the most, that was the toughest part for me. Um, and again, too, like my parents were at, my actually my whole family was on the show on the bachelorette. They were on my hometown. Day. Right. So, right. you know, you know, <laughs> they get a small taste of it too. Like, Oh, I can't believe Chris's mom would say that. And, you know, articles and, you just don't know how to handle it. You don't know how to handle it initially. Um, and it, it hurts. I mean, it was, it was a dark time there for, for a minute. Cause you don't, you don't know how to handle it. And there's no one there helping you know how to handle it. Um, so, you know, um, it sucks, but man, if you can, if you can get through that and uh, learn from it uh, and you, you, I was young too, man, I was 25. So it was, it was, it was, I was taking it hard and I was doing things to try to fix that, that we're making it only worse. Uh, so, right. um, it, again, it's, it's a, it's a hole that not many people ever have to dig themselves out of. And, uh, I didn't know what to do. And, um, so again, as I grew and kind of learned from it, uh, you just kind of take it, man. You got to see how to take the punches and learn from it. And at the end of the day, uh, after all of this, it's um, the only people that honestly matter is is the people that after, you know, your worst day will still be, you know, at your side. And, you know, that's my, you know, my family, my friends and all this other BS, man, all these a lot of these people I don't even keep in touch with, you know, from the show, like 
there's there's not there's not a lot of authenticity. There's not a lot of a lot of these people come in and out of your life. So it's you got to yeah. just take it with a grain of salt. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, I never. I mean, I guess I've thought about the strain with the parents and the disappointment, and that's somewhat inevitable. Uh, on the flip side, if you were you were obviously a man bringing a woman home to your family, so it's different. But I wonder if on The Bachelor, this guy goes to all these women's houses and basically asks the father for their daughter's hand in marriage and then doesn't propose to her. Mm-hmm. What's it like? I've got to imagine for them to have like three dads out there that basically want to kill you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. It's tough just to have one, you know? Um but yeah, no, that's that's a tough situation. It's super awkward too, but that's, you know, part of the show. So it's, you know, when these families are sending, especially now these contestants are so young, you know, when they're sending these kids off to the show, like they got to expect to potentially be in that opportunity. And for the actual bachelor, like that's super awkward because here's the thing, you know, at home, he, he knows, he already knows, man. He's just part of the to. show. He knows. Right. I, I knew. So I made it to hometowns. And I knew like there was a long shot of a chance, you know, that I was going to make it past that because I just, I just had that feeling. You just know. I mean, you're there. You're living it. It's not a TV show. Exactly. So, you know, what sucks too, man, is getting dumped after hometown dates because then your family thinks it's their fault. Uh, so it's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. But uh, yeah, it's tough, man, on both sides, but it's, you know, it's the show and it's, it's not normal, um, but uh, that's what makes it so good. Yeah, I guess, you know, because like you said, because nobody ever finds themselves naturally in those positions. That's what makes it so compelling to watch on TV. Um, have you had any bad experiences just because you are a public figure? I mean, I can tell you being a public figure in this space with my real face, I was the victim you know, of an attempted hack recently and mm-hmm. I get all kinds of threats and craziness in my DMs. Do you experience some of that? Oh yeah, big time. Um, and with you, I experienced that same hack. <laughs> um, oh, but uh, yeah, from uh, God, man, from the show, there's there's some crazy people out there, man. I was getting I was getting like uh, we got um, some threats mailed to my parents' uh, house. So like these letters, like these cryptic letters. Um, even in person, like people aren't really ever. Uh, they're not too mean, but you'll get some some people here and there. I've had a drink thrown at me, um, you know, stuff like that. But uh, honestly, right, so it goes uh, offline for you. It's not you're not just an online personality. You're getting accosted in public. Oh yeah, big time. Uh, most of the, most of it's positive in public. I would say half, you know, half and half online because people are braver online. Um, yeah, but I would say, man, I was I would probably be putting a lot. Uh, more uh, peculiar situations just from being involved in crypto than, uh, you know, being on TV. Um, believe yeah. it or not. Uh, it's Can you whole... talk about any of those or is it uh, <laughs> yeah. not worth discussing? Yeah, no, I mean, a, a big one too, man. I had uh, the, I had the hack, the SIM card hack, um, oddly enough on my birthday last summer. And it was, uh, it was, it was horrible. I was, uh, it's the worst. So what sucked too is I don't know how it all, kind of went down with you, but I was out with my buddies at a bar and I was hooked up to the Wi-Fi at the bar and I noticed my service went out on my phone and I'm like, this is, this is weird. And yeah. oddly, oddly enough, my buddy from the, sh- from one of the shows, he's like, dude, someone, I think your Twitter got hacked. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Dude, I go on my Twitter and someone's tweeting from my account, super explicit stuff. And then also they're like, uh, they were putting their Bitcoin address, tweeting out to my followers on my account their Bitcoin address to send them Bitcoin. <laughs> that's a unique. That's a unique, uh, unique approach. <laughs> right? I'm like, what? I'm like, what's happening? And then I'm like, I'm so I'm like, shit. I'm like, all right, let's reset the Twitter password. No, 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 no. Can't reset the Twitter password because they were in my email. They reset. It. Yep. They, yep. they, they totally got me. And then I'm like, oh shit, this has got to be. Obviously, it's crypto involved because they're looking for Bitcoin. Couldn't get. I couldn't really get access into into my wallets, but I was pretty secure, um, you know, with the two FA and and all that stuff. And um, right. so luckily, I didn't get you there. They didn't get any of my money. Uh, luckily, um, I, I'm pretty protected about that. But but it's, uh, they they took my identity for a day, and that was that was scary enough. And um, 
uh, yeah, crypto, man, it's it's a it's a crazy world out there, and there's a lot of you know smart people that are uh, that are involved in it and uh, try to take advantage of people, and uh, you know you got a you got a taste of it too, and it was it was pretty. Yeah, scary. when they have your identity for a day is one thing, but I think sort of the shadow shadowing shattering your uh, innocence to some degree mm-hmm. the fallout afterwards because you become i mean to some degree very paranoid i mean which is good obviously in this space and you want to be cautious but you know i it was definitely i was up all night for for days changing passwords and now every time my phone loses a connection for a second which is probably just my shitty service <laughs> you know i panic and think that maybe i'm being hacked again or something it's there's a lot that comes with you know, putting yourself out there in this space. It's pretty, pretty terrifying when you really dig into it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. For both sides, you know, especially from being in crypto and being on the show, I mean, I'm out there like that's, you know, when you, well, I sent I you, uh, shit back in the horse, like, it, exactly, exactly. When I, you know, emailed you, like, if, you know, what it's like when, you know, um, if people know who I actually am, I'm like, dude, I, I feel like people do know who I am just because I, I almost put my whole life out on social media and on TV. But at the end of the day, they, they really just get a small sliver of who I actually am. But uh, it is scary if you think about it because our privacy, you know, yours as well, is there's not a lot of it, you know. Um, okay. And most people primarily are, are pretty private. And uh, until you get this platform, you know, you just, you're out there, man, you're exposed and it's, uh, it's, um, you know, it's a slippery slope and obviously there's, there's the positives and clearly the negatives, but, uh, that's just, I guess, you know, who we are. Yeah. I saw that there's some, uh, dancing with the stars mixed with bachelor show coming up. What, what is that all about? Yeah. You know, I'm still pretty, um, fresh on the details on that, but I think it's like, um, a singing competition, with uh, singing competition, that's yeah, what it is. singing competition with some kind of love aspect. You know, a, you know, ABC and that production company—they're making so much money off these shows. They're like, we might as well just run it all year round. It's like so, uh, so dumb, but yeah, why not? I mean, I I saw the a commercial for that, and I was I was astounded. I yes. couldn't believe it. It's like uh, what is it? The Yes Network that has just Yankee stuff all year round. I mean, that's pretty yeah. much what the Bachelor's turning into. That's so smart, though. So now I'm going to ask you probably the stupidest question you've ever been asked in your entire life, mm-hmm. um, because it's one that my friend asks random strangers at bars and always leads to a hilarious conversation. So here it is: <laughs> If you had to choose between one of these two, would it be a full body, full upper body tattoo of a turtleneck? Or to only be able to eat shawarma for every meal until you die. Oh man, I'll get that. I'll get that tattoo in a in a in a heartbeat. <laughs> so you, you would be wearing a permanent turtleneck I mean, the rest I'll, of your life. Every time you wear a t-shirt or a deep V, it looks like you got a turtleneck underneath. All right, what color is the turtleneck, and how high is the turtleneck? Uh, I mean, I guess that's your choice. High enough that you know uh, it would be noticeable under anything that wasn't a turtleneck. I could, I just couldn't imagine eating the same thing for the rest of my life. You know, <laughs> so even if I didn't say shawarma, even if I said you know uh, Peter Peter Luger's steak, you would still go for the tattoo. I just love food too much to take it out of my life, man. I, I just give me the turtleneck any day. Um, what if you had to choose one food for the rest of your life? What would it be? Uh. I mean, I'm a I'm a simple steak and potatoes guy, so it's uh, yeah. I, I couldn't get rid of that. The turtleneck, man, that's that's tough. I, I feel like most people would say the turtleneck. Am I wrong? I think I think so too. But it, I mean, when you really think about the implications of that, you know, your day on the beach, mm-hmm. and but, you're just in a in a full turtleneck, and people are wondering if it's real or if it's tattoo because you can't even tell from afar. You know, like why is that guy wearing a turtleneck on the beach? And then when they realize you're not, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say my TV days would be over if I got the turtleneck. That's for sure. I don't know, man. It could launch a whole other career and those free kind of, you know, freaky people shows. I don't that's, know. That's true too. <laughs> All right, man. Well, where can people find you? Where can people follow up with you after this? Yeah, man, just uh, Twitter and Instagram, uh, Chris J Bukowski, um, pretty active uh, across social media and, uh, uh, no, no TV planned in the short term. So maybe something uh, in the next year or so. So um, yeah, just uh, social media. Awesome, man. Well, this has been a, a perfect conversation. Exactly what I was hoping for. And I think that uh, maybe you got a chance to tell people hopefully who you really are and not who they uh, think you are. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely, man. Thanks uh, for having me, Scott. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We'll do it again soon.
Sounds good. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.